It's this week in the CLE, the discussion and analysis of news in Northeast Ohio by the people who bring you that news, the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor at Cleveland.com, and I'm talking with columnist Mark Namick, politics editor Jane Cahoon, data journalist Rich Exner, and criminal justice reporter Corey Schaefer. You all ready to talk about snitches? I guess. Snitches is where we start. We start off with the bizarre story from early in the week that someone anonymously had sent a letter calling Cuyahoga County Auditor Corey Swaysgood a snitch. Corey Schaefer, where did that letter get mailed and why is it significant? So that letter was sent to the city of Huron and it was specifically addressed to the city manager. Uh, And that letter is significant because Corey Swaysgood is the one of the, if not the, key witness against the indicted IT general counsel, Emily McNeely. And, um, you know, when, when this first came out in this uh, court filing on Tuesday, it was pretty clear that the prosecutors considered this some sort of part, at least part of an effort to try to intimidate witnesses taken with the subpoenas that we had written about before, uh, that were seeking people's internet records and their their Gmail uh, data that would show who they were emailing. And these were, um, you know, not their county addresses, their private Gmail accounts and their private internet uh, histories. The, the, the odd thing is, is to think of the auditor whose job it is to explore issues that might be awry as a snitch. I mean, he was doing doing his job. So it was it just felt odd that somebody sent a letter. But then you sure. did a story saying that that letter was a subject of a criminal investigation, which frankly threw me. Anonymous letters go out all the time. We get them all the time. It's not a crime. But then ultimately, we had a stunning revelation that you wrote about later that explained why this might be considered a crime. What was that? So the, yeah, I think they wanted to find out who sent it because they they couldn't tell if it was potentially a crime or not if they didn't know who sent it. it it all depended on who sent it and what their intent was and come to find out uh yesterday the sender the anonymous letter writer was roger sinberg who is obviously a very prominent preeminent attorney in the county everybody knows roger he's very well connected very well respected uh i mean he's got a reputation for being a bulldog but you know well, and and he's representing Emily, Emily McNeely. I mean, the, and that that's that's where this gets really, really weird and bizarre. Yeah, I mean, he's a party in the case, and he has admitted sending a letter that could be seen as witness tampering or witness intimidation. Sure. My, my, what are the consequences? Could he get removed from the case? Could he lose his law license? Is could this be a felony charge? Uh, the answer is yes to all of them. I mean, it. it I think. You know, I, I talked to a bunch of experts yesterday, and I think at the at the minimum, he's probably going to have to remove himself from the case because he's inserted himself into this now, and um, you just you really just can't do that. And as far as the criminal investigation, the Erie County prosecutors are going to handle it because you know there's joint jurisdiction because the letter was they believe was mailed from Cuyahoga County, but it was received in Erie. And I, they could prosecute either way. <laughs> well, but it goes it goes beyond that. I mean, the attorney general is investigating this because Mike O'Malley's office, the, the, the bigger case, because yeah. Michael O'Malley, the pro- county prosecutor, his office had a conflict. Right. 
Mike O'Malley's office has a conflict in this case, really, because they regularly appear before Roger's wife, a common police court judge named Correct. Joan Sinnenberg. So it makes sense to dispense with it. Th- yeah. This was the talk of legal circles yesterday, because like you said, everybody knows Roger. He was Frank Russo's attorney in the massive yeah. corruption case. Um, and this is kind of an unthinkable self-destructive act. And you, you start to wonder, because we've had, our editorial board has taken a bit of a position that the criminal investigation of this stuff is a little bit off the rails. It's a bit of a crusade. Does that engender really stupid activity like this? I mean, he's he's in trouble here. I mean, Mark, you've been dealing with him for years. He's a passionate guy. But did you ever see anything like this coming? No. I mean, any, every reporter that's dealt with Rogers probably had a colorful off-the-record argument uh, with him and uh, he's you know he's funny and can be uh, pretty uh, punchy but uh, seeing this in print making that next step was surprise but you just hit on the point Chris he I think in, in published quotes has really tried to diminish the, the the value of this investigation saying he truly doesn't believe you know they have the there there and uh, obviously this sort of manifested itself and you can see that in the letter yeah, I, I mean, it, it will. It's hard to see that he's, you know, this again, I this is not a legal judgment, but it is to me. It, it, it feels like an emotional reaction. You know, he wasn't really trying to intimidate as much as just getting this off his brain. But we that's not for us to decide. But, but stop there a sec. I mean, normally you see that emotional reaction from people that have had a drink at night and they dash off a bit of social media. But this is a letter that you put into an envelope stamp and then take the action of putting yeah, it into the mail. Yeah, it takes a lot more than hitting that send button, uh, and that is the difference. Uh, yeah, you, the, the, the filter doesn't didn't seem to be working. There was plenty of time to think, wait, what am I doing? And he didn't do it. No less odd, but hardly surprising, was the substantial jump in state sales tax collections four years ago. Rich, we asked you to find out if you could measure the effect of a single retail, retailer beginning to collect those taxes. Who was it, and what did you find? A single retailer is pretty big retailer, Amazon. And while the state won't tell us how much any one business pays in taxes under privacy rules, uh, you can piece things together, and it looks like they are huge. Um, and it's so big that if you didn't get the money from sales on Amazon, you'd probably have to raise the sales tax in the state of Ohio about a quarter percent to collect the same amount of money. What's interesting is that people were supposed to be paying those taxes all along through the honor system, but clearly based on the bump that you saw that took place instantly after they started paying taxes four years ago, uh, people were not doing that. But you also found in the reporting of that story, the existence of another Amazon loophole, one legislators now are bent on fixing. What's that about? Well, anybody that's bought things on Amazon might have noticed this, and some probably even searched it out. If you bought something from Amazon, even though Amazon four years ago began to start collecting sales taxes from you, uh, you can search for any any item you can think of, golf balls, on an Amazon site. And you might land on a, a retailer that's actually not Amazon. They're there in what they call their marketplace. And many of those were not charging the sales tax. Um, Amazon, I'm told, is okay with doing that. It just gets a little bit complicated. So they actually have written policies on, on their website saying if if the state passes what's called a market t- marketplace facilitator thing, I mean, they're, they're the facilitator of the marketplace. If there's rules in place... We'll, we'll collect it. And 15 states have done so. So now Ohio is uh, looks like it's going to uh, join that. Um, so going forward, the state gets a little bit more money. Um, 
theoretically, they won't need as much money from you from other for other purposes, but we'll see how that goes. So what you're saying, Rich, is uh, shopping on Amazon has just become less appealing for those that always enjoyed it for its ability to avoid that tax collection. Well, what's, what's funny about it is it's almost 20 years ago now, back in 2001, before everybody was even probably connected on the Internet, to, on the state income tax form that people fill out each year. There, there was a line that was added saying, did you buy anything in which you didn't pay sales tax? Now, that could be any number of things, but really it was targeted, did you buy something on the Internet without saying that and not pay sales tax? And if you did, you know, you need to tell us about it. And report now. Yeah. Uh, uh, Nobody it's, did. It's, it's laughable uh, how, how little it was uh, that was collected. And, and I was actually surprised that 60,000 people or so last, uh, last year did put down something on that line. But that's only like close to one in 100 people. All right. We started thinking about all this Amazon business after you did an analysis of the latest buying trends in Ohio based on general sales tax collections. What were your takeaways from that? I just took a snapshot of the, the first few months of this year in which data is available. And it looks like um, sales tax collections are up about 3.5%. Now, that means something for the budget wonks at governments. But, but I always like to translate that. What's that mean in terms of um, people? And that means that more people are spending money on – or more money is being spent on taxable things in Ohio. And 3.5% isn't a great jump, but it's a little bit better than inflation. So so for whatever reason, pe- people do have more money in their pockets or at least willing to spend more money on their pockets on the types of things that are taxable, whether it's going out to eat or you know, buying things on Amazon or, or whatever the case may be. All right. Well, lately we're seeing a different kind of trend on a national scale. The United States is seeing more cases of measles this year than we've seen in decades. Actually, I read something uh, just this week said we've crossed the thousand mark. Uh, health officials are blaming this on the anti-vaccination movement in the country. Uh, public health officials say that the movement is really life-threatening because of what measles can do. Yet, an Ohio legislator wants to make it easier for people to avoid vaccinations. Jane, who is this Luddite, and what is he thinking? <laughs> Actually, it's two legislators, uh, Representative Ron Hood from Pickaway County, who is, um, I would describe as very conservative, and um, Bernadine Kennedy Kent from Columbus, who is a Democrat, and she kind of marches to her own uh, drummer. Uh, anyway, they uh, they want to make it, um, they want to tell employers you can't discriminate against anybody who refuses to be vaccinated for, you know, allergic or conscience or, you know, religious reasons, whatever. You can't take an adverse action against them. And they say, this is all about freedom, you know, not letting someone put something into your body that you don't want to be there and et cetera. But, um, but this I is, just, but this is something that we really had beaten. It was, it was right. pretty much gone. Diseases have been eradicated, polio yeah. and diphtheria. And, um, it's, I just, I have a hard time believing this bill is going to go anywhere. I mean, if you're a hospital or, or other healthcare, uh, facility, you know, you have to, you can't subject your patients with, you know, immune problems to people who aren't vaccinated. And what, if you move that person to another assignment, you know, they can sue you and collect all these damages? Well, but given, you know, the politics of Columbus are very odd, but even given that, you know, do you, would, would the legislators really do something so seemingly dumb? On this one, I don't think so. I mean... There are factions in the legislature that you would consider extreme, you know, on both sides. But 
honestly, I don't think there's going to be a consensus around this one. Mark. Among the most powerful lobbyists in Ohio because of their job power is is obviously the, the healthcare industry. So they're certainly going to step on this, uh, step up on this. You know, it's interesting that, you know, we have so much focus on the anti-vaccine content on social media that gets everybody wound up. But the real issue is what happens in the states. And when states change the rules that make it easier to opt out uh, for getting a vaccine, those are things that studies have shown have really triggered the increase in, in measles and stuff. And, and yes, this is an example. Uh, the people that support it, 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 they don't disagree with the science. This is what studies have shown. They are on this idea of freedom in government. These are generally uh, more educated people, higher incomes that believe in an individualist uh, view of things. And, uh, you know, it has led to, I think we could agree, it's bad policies. Uh, but I don't think this is going to pass in Ohio because of that health care. Right, another story out of Columbus. Larry Householder, the House Speaker, wants to make sure libraries don't teach boys how to be drag queens. How did the Speaker get involved in such a debate, Jane? Well, the Speaker didn't have a very good start to Pride Month, let's just say that. Um, <laughs> he just went into full freak-out mode about these events that were scheduled at a couple of central Ohio libraries that were um, celebrating the art of drag. Uh, one of them included like a makeup demonstration or something. Anyway, he wrote this big open letter denouncing this and just said, let me be clear, we are not using taxpayer money for this. Apparently, um, you know, even though they were at public places, they weren't taxpayer funded. But um, anyway, he's gotten all kinds of pushback from people who say what, you but know, why this? Well, I mean, why, why stick your neck out for this? He's got so much going on and he's got this tenuous coalition that gives him his power. Why did he step out on this one? I, I think this is an issue that he just feels strongly about and he's got, political capital that he can spend and um i was so. disappointed that the, the library so quickly uh, moved moved these events off site uh librarians traditionally and we've seen it on a lot of issues have really been strong proponents of of of, of you know the free speech the meetings the topics not not letting the politics get in the way and and this just seemed to uh, go so fast. Um, I think one of the libraries said that they were receiving threats, perhaps veiled threats, yeah. but they were concerned about safety. And so I know one of the events yeah. was moved to another location. Yeah, okay. I, I just, he's, I don't know, I mean, maybe he's not realized there are gay people in Ohio. I mean, I, I mean <laughs> really, it just, there are a lot of battles in Ohio to fight. This this seems like... Uh, and he did it on the first day of Pride Month. Well, I mean, it but was he just, doesn't recognize Pride Month, obviously, yeah. or have any recognition for the larger issues because I think a lot of members of his caucus uh, would support him in this. Yeah, but they the Democrats don't. might not, and they're the ones that actually. Oh no! Gave and the in fact, they seat. issued a statement just yeah. you know, and the um, I believe the House Minority Leader uh, Amelia Sykes has invited him yeah. to some gay pride event or something, and he said, "Well, I got to see my my wife might want to go to a quilting show instead or something." 
All right. And because the sublime and ridiculous are what Columbus can be all about, you also edited a story that I'll bet you never imagined when you decided <laughs> to be a journalist. The subject was synthetic pee. Why are we publishing stories about synthetic yes, pee? Yes, Chris. Never did I think in my journalism career that I would be Googling the term fake pee. But there you have it. I had to do that. Um, the, uh, a state senator, uh, Teresa Gavarone of Bowling Green, uh, wants to criminalize basically cheating on a drug sc- uh, screening by using synthetic pee, which is you can buy on the internet. <laughs> you can buy. Got to pay sales uh, tax on it. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Unless it's the in the marketplace, <laughs> right? And uh, or using someone else's urine or altering it with some kind of substance. And um, frankly, I we're all chuckling here, but this is a sad commentary on. With the opioid crisis, you know, there are all the people who want to get around their employment screenings or court screenings or, or whatever. Um, it's also, you know, kind of a reminder that if there's money to be made on something, people will, you know, no matter how unscrupulous yeah. it is, they, they will make money on helping you cheat on your urine test. Would this synthetic pee mask whether or not you've had your immunizations? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. All right. After a short break, Lake Erie is at its all-time highest level, and we're going to talk about what that means. It's this week in the CLE. The movers and shakers of Ohio start their mornings each weekday by getting up-to-date on state house news and politics through Cleveland.com's Capital Letter Newsletter. If you want to know what they know as they make the decisions that affect your life, subscribe to Capital Letter at cleveland.com backslash newsletters. Best of all, it's free. We're back on This Week in the CLE, the cleveland.com podcast about the latest news. I'm Chris Quinn with Mark Namick, and in this segment, Special Projects Editor Laura Johnston and reporters Adam Faris and Courtney Astolfi. Laura also manages our rockthelake.com website, and for someone focused on the lake, the news this week was pretty big, an all-time record for the lake level in more than a century of measuring. Laura, how high is it? We're at 574.3 feet above sea level, which is about 30 inches higher than normal, and obliterated our May record and actually set an all-time record. June is usually the highest point for the lake, so we'll likely set another all-time record in June. Well... for the month of June. So we'll find out in July. You know, when, when you talk about it in those terms, it's kind of hard to, um, to envision what it means. So we started wondering just how much water we're talking about when the lake is that high. And we turn where we always do when we have those flights of fancy to Rich Exner. We ask him to give us an idea, maybe with how many times you could fill Brown Stadium. He came up with two pretty clear illustrations. What were they? So one was covering the whole entire state of Ohio with about a half a foot of water, because if you think about it, uh, Lake Erie is about a fifth of the state of Ohio. And then he had another one of how many uh, days it would flow over Lake um, of Niagara Falls, which is just kind of mind boggling when you think of this. Um, lake Erie is the smallest, shallowest Great Lake, but it's still a great lake. Yeah, but what was it? How many days? Would it take to empty the extra if you doubled the flow of Niagara Falls? That I got to come back to you with. It was, it was yeah, it was, it was like 173 or something, right? I mean, it was, it would take beyond the end of summer. Yeah, I mean, and have anybody seen Niagara Falls? 79 days of flow over Niagara Falls. So we're talking two and a half months. If it doubled the flow. Yes. Yeah. 
Staying on the water, you talked last week about a novel approach to parking boats on the river without impeding shipping. Remind us what that was about and now what's happening to try and make it permanent. So um, a group of kids from Davis Maritime and Aerospace School, which is a, a Cleveland Metro Park, or sorry, Cleveland Metropolitan School District uh, High School, um, they work with FASTAR, which is a nonprofit, to dock boats in the safety zone, which is kind of a misnomer. It's where you cannot park uh, because of freighter traffic. Um, and so they did 44 uh, yards of dock over Memorial Day week, and they docked more than 370 boats. And so it was really successful. They had a meeting with the Coast Guard, and they were like, wow, this is great. Let's go. And then they stopped because they didn't know who was going to pay for it, really. And so the Davis kids, who are literally some of the poorest kids in the city, said, let's start a GoFundMe to raise money so we can have this program for people who own boats. So it's kind of ironic that they're they're fundraising for people who own million-dollar boats. But uh, when I checked, they'd raised over $1,000. Um, everybody thinks it's it's a pretty um, unique idea, and they give the kids a lot of credit for coming up with a solution. Why don't they just do, though, what they do with valet parking and charge the people with the boats? So there's some questions about that because it is a public city-owned dock. It's not owned by Flats East Bank, and anybody can dock there. You don't have to just go to the Flats restaurants, which is why the Flats says, well, we shouldn't have to pay for it because somebody apparently parked their boat and went to an Indians game. But... um so there is a question of who's going to pay for it. I think there's going to be probably buy-in from a lot of different groups. Okay. We published a special episode of this podcast recently, which included in its entirety a conversation that we had in 2017 with County Executive Armand Budish and his key cabinet members. This was before a criminal investigation of the administration began. So what you get by listening are some remarkable insights into how the administration was thinking in the days it was making some of the decisions that are now under investigation. You can listen to it at the same place you found this episode. But several things stand out, not least of which is how many arguments they made to us that all turned out to be completely wrong. They believe they could pay overtime to salary worker, salaried workers. We didn't agree. Turns out they were wrong. They thought they could do things outside of the scope of the personnel manual that was approved by the county council. We disagreed. Turns out they were wrong. But, but they clearly fervently believed this. They believed they were operating uh, by the rules. These are interesting times. Now that we look back based on the investigation, what stands out to you guys about this recording? The, f- the first thing is that they were really operating uh, with what they thought was the, the backing of their law director, Robert Triazzi. And uh, we, you know, that seems like a pretty big fumble uh, to later be proven wrong on. And, uh, you know, they came in with that, you know, confidence. Uh, and I think that that's where you have to start. I mean, that is what the law director's job is, is to help guide the administration, the legislation that they want to promote. And they were standing by it. And he was, I mean, he was citing charter and Ohio revised code. I mean, they were in our face saying they could do these things. And we keep saying, but that, that doesn't make sense to us. Why would the county council have to approve it if you don't have to follow it? And they just kept saying it over and over again. Um, the other thing that stood out is Douglas Dykes, the chief town officer, was there. He's now charged with a felony uh, theft because he gave a $15,000 signing bonus to someone that Armin Budish wanted to recruit. But in this meeting, you have his boss, Sharon Silver Jordan, 
his boss's boss, Armin Budish, and the top lawyer of the county all giving him complete cover. I have a hard time seeing how a jury doesn't listen to this recording and say, yeah, he had criminal intent. Well, th- those are my witnesses if I'm dying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating. I, we had no idea uh, until we went back and listened to it just how much insight it would uh, But then you look at, at all the other things that are kind of under the surface there, like you pointed out in your column about um, saying, oh, we can give overtime to workers because you want to make sure that they work a 40-hour week. And then there's Sharon Schlobel Jordan, who's getting her degree at the time. In Columbus. She was spending it's a lot just, of time There's in a lot of layers in this uh, recording. Yeah, it is. One of the top focuses of the criminal investigation is the jail and how eight people died there last year when no more than two had died in previous years. The Cleveland.com team has been all over this jail story, and pretty much everything anyone knows about it came from the team that includes Adam and Courtney. The county has done a pretty good job of giving us paper records, maybe, um, but one area where the county repeatedly has thwarted the law involves video. We repeatedly have had to go to court to get the videos. Adam, the legal legal efforts paid off uh, this week, and you finally got your hands on one you'd been hearing about. Why is it important, and what does it show? So this was one of the deaths in in August, and, you know, like you said, the paper documents we had, we had actually gotten them. Uh, independently of the the county, they did not want us to get those either. Um, but it showed for the first time just how long this particular inmate was laying dying in the jail by himself, without anyone coming up to him, without anybody looking to see if hey, this guy that's curled up in an awkward position might be in trouble. Uh, and that's that was the heart of it. He he had uh, ingested some drugs and was overdosing he had asked to go to medical and he we for the first time saw him lay there for two hours and 19 minutes without uh really anything other than a correction officer walking up kicking his mat and walking immediately walking away and and with these overdose deaths we do know based on what's been happening throughout the county with police and other emergency responders that if you get to somebody in time, you can use Narcan to revive them. So if anybody in those two hours had paid attention to him, chances are he might have lived? Yeah, he, there's a good chance he might have survived. I mean, by the time they got to him, you can see, I mean, you can see on the video, he hasn't moved an inch, a millimeter in two hours. So it was more than likely he had been dead for a while. The other thing, too, is as soon as he left for lunch, another officer came in saw that saw it and radio you know a couple of inmates alerted him and he radioed it immediately it wasn't like oh this guy maybe he's taking a nap or something he was clearly in distress they knew our lawyer has also been talking to the county lawyers about another video we've been after for three months one showing an inmate strapped to a chair and getting beaten by a guard um it shows pretty much an incredible level of cruelty happening under the administration of Budish and we've been determined to overcome their efforts to conceal it from the public. Yesterday, the efforts paid off as the county released the video, not to us. They released it to a television station. They're telling us, though, that it was incompetence by a staff member that resulted in this being released outside of the outside of the process. It's the latest in a long line of incompetent acts by this administration. Adam, why is this video important? This one's particularly important because of the brutality of it. Uh, the inmate is a mentally ill inmate. He's strapped in a restraint chair. He can't move a muscle. They bring him into a, uh, isolation, which is a really small cell. Nobody's around. Nobody can see anything. 
the officer, you can see him clearly turn off his video, body camera video, thinking that no one would be able to see what he was going to do next, and just pummels him several times in the face, uh, giving him a concussion. And then another officer who's in there with him just seems like he just walked up and wanted to get a shot in himself. And Just one more for good measure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you had seen this a while ago, but it was getting it in such a way where we could reveal it, or you just had heard about it? Yeah, we had just heard the brutality of it was would be shocking, and we wanted to get our hands on that as quickly as possible, which we we put in a records for that records request for that pretty uh, pretty pretty much immediately, and uh, got denied. They said, you know, we're we're not going to give this up at all. It's exempt from public records law, which was not true. Um, I even I look I I mean I talked to Budish about it myself. I said, look, you guys keep losing this. You're wrong. It's the public's video. You have to give it up. And he would say, well, our lawyers. I have to follow what our lawyers say. The lawyers say we we can't give it up. And then yesterday, it just mysteriously gets released. Yeah, that was pretty uh pretty magical. That was really that was really something. But like <laughs> you said, it's it's a long line. Uh, you know, I I filed a court of claims case that got the the video we just talked about. Corey Schaefer had won a case of a, a jail beating in 2018 where they said, you know, they were pretty much clearly trying to stop us from getting that video. Um, there was one, Courtney, uh, the letter uh, letter they sent to us was completely different from what they sent to counsel about jail health care, which was... Right, there were three paragraphs yeah, missing from yeah, the one we got. Uh, and again, they claimed it was incompetence. It's, we get a lot of the the explanation that it's incompetence. You had another story this week that we were talking about Samaria Rice. The mother of Tamir Rice is dedicated to making sure that the man who shot and killed her 12-year-old son as he played on a playground never again wears a Cleveland police badge. What did she do this week to accomplish that goal? Uh, she had an uh, uh, put online petitions out there, I think on change.org and uh, moveon.org that got 170,000 signatures from people across the country agreeing with her that the uh, Cleveland Police Union should stop their legal challenge to Tim Lohman's firing. Um, do they have a choice? Does the union have to do this because he was a member, or do they have the ability to to look at it and say, look, common sense says this guy shouldn't be uh, a police officer again? I mean, is there any any – do they get to say – or do they have to proceed? Um, I think they pretty much have to proceed at this point. Um, they don't. I mean, there's no legal work requirement that says a union has to fight to the death. Uh, they've dug in on this from day one, so I think they're. I mean, that's been their position, and they do think that they have a, a strong case. Um, you know, they, they yeah, feel it, strongly about their arguments. And uh, we should point out he wasn't fired for shooting Tamir Rice. He fired. He was fired because he was misleading as hell when he applied for his job as a Cleveland police officer, Laura. I was just going to say the same thing is you, you think, oh, he's getting, you know, he was fired. He shouldn't have a job back because he shot and killed a 12 year old. However, he was found to have done nothing wrong and not violated any police policies in the shooting. So um, that's why everybody's signing this, right? Because they don't believe he should be on the force after this happened. But that's not the, the what they're actually finding about. Yeah, I mean, precedent is important to the union, and in all these cases, we see them see this in arbitration where they look back at previous cases. So they they really are going to fight this. They want to establish it's going to set precedent on this issue of what you need to disclose in your your application, and and obviously because this is tied to the Tamir Rice shooting, there's bigger implications. I thought the optics was were, were really interesting on both sides of this that they 
obviously held the press conference and delivered the petitions to the police union building. And I thought the, the union smartly opened the doors and accepted those petitions so that you don't create this pushback. Again, the petitions in of themselves have no legal merit, weight, but it is about keeping it in, in, in the public discussion. And, and so I think from that standpoint, that obviously was successful because we're talking about it. Well, accepting petitions is something the city council could learn a lesson from. For sure. (laughs) And with the arbitration, like it's hard for a police officer to get, to not get their job back through arbitration. I feel like usually it goes toward the officer. Yeah. Although the city feels like it's been getting a little bit more success of late because there's been so much attention paid to the arbitrators. It hadn't, it has not been what it was four and five years ago. Earlier, we talked about snitches. Let's talk about gotchas now. Courtney got a piece this week about Arnold Bud- Armin Budish's strong feelings about a candidate to replace the auditor, who we talked about earlier, who was called a snitch. What's this one about? Well, um, we were told from sources that County Executive Budish came out during a closed-door meeting and said, you know, he didn't want this this deputy internal auditor a lot of um, a lot of folks see see this man as like a right hand man. He does a lot of work in the office. Um, Armin did not want him to be the next internal auditor, and he called him a quote "gotcha guy," according well, to our sources. Well, and set the stage a little bit. I mean, I mean the, the auditor's office has been the source of a lot of bad news for Armin Budish. Every time they look at a system in the county, they come out and say, this needs to be changed. You know, it was the mishandling of money, cash in the treasurer's office. It was the payment of overtime to salaried workers. So so Armin Budish is sensitive to what the auditor does, but it's a little bit surprising given that, that he would go in and say something as, as inflammatory as, I don't want that guy, he's a gotcha guy, because it shows how much he's wincing under the pressure from the auditor. Yeah, and, and something to keep in mind here, I mean, the gotcha guy, that's the whole point of the internal auditor. I mean, they're supposed to go in and make your government more efficient and point out places that are risky or maybe bad handling of money or finances. If he's a gotcha guy, he's doing his job. So what did Budish and his administration have to say when you ask questions about this? They didn't really speak to the issue I asked about. And they just said, you know, we support the pick and we support the internal auditor's office. But it didn't get at the heart of that conflict that we've been hearing a lot about since the current internal internal auditor put in his resignation. And we'll see what happens on Friday morning. Right. When they pick the... They're going to pick the new uh, interim auditor. Right. And the county executive is not a voting member here, but he does appoint the other committee members. They're they're subject to approval by county council, but you have the executive coming out. You'd think that he'd be intending to have some influences maybe perhaps on, on the pick of the folks that he appoints. And we'll see. We'll see. Uh, you also had a pretty good piece of news out of RTA. This one's interesting. I think folks in in the city and county will be very interested. Um, So an RTA board committee signed off on a wireless contract that will bring Wi-Fi for passengers on trains and buses. Now, the full RTA board hasn't signed off on it yet, but this is the final piece in them upgrading several key parts of their technology and, and their radio communications and technology accessible for their drivers. But part of that will be Wi-Fi for passengers. I I thought it was interesting that one of the benefits of this is that the drivers will get turn-by-turn instructions as they do their routes. You would think that the person driving the bus would actually know the routes by now. 
Sure, but I, I think it's part of like a broader, they also will have access to computer track diagnostics. They can see when an engine's about to overheat, pull that bus out and get a new one in. So they say it, it's really to, to zoom up and, and get the vehicles more in line with current technology. The Wi-Fi is interesting. You know, Mark uh, did a piece last week as part of a greater Cleveland that had an image that I'll never shake of all these people parked outside a library after hours because they needed the Wi-Fi access. So so this is another way to provide people that don't necessarily have wireless access a way to have it. It's certainly popular with riders. I think most of the business ridership you know you get a lot from the west side that 55 coming down lake road and into the downtown i mean they've got you know phones that have the data but everybody always loves free data and then you have other workers that are are coming in uh early morning uh that i'm sure is a benefit to that don't have uh the unlimited uh data and i think that's a big deal and if you're stuck in traffic now behind a bus folks you are able to tap in <laughs> to that Wi-Fi. So it's because it, you can't control the signal to stay within that bus. So I've, I've seen that happen. Drive. You know, RTA gets a lot of grief deservedly for, for things they do. But this seems like a, a pretty public-minded thing. So it's, it's good to see. We'll take a short break and come back to talk about the possible return of Frank Jackson's dirt bike plan. It's this week in the CLE. Everyone has their favorite writer at Cleveland.com, and now you can get a bit closer to them through Cleveland.com's Project Text. Each weekday, they will send you a text message about what they are thinking as they go about their reporting. It's a unique way of engaging with Mary Kay Cabot as she covers the Browns, Doug Maurice as he thinks about Ohio State University, Corey Schaefer as he shares insights about the Justice Center, and many more. There's a small fee, which we use to support our journalism. Check it out at Cleveland.com slash Project Text. It's the final news segment of This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn with Mark Namick, and in this segment, reporters Bob Higgs and Emily Bamforth. Many people might not be aware, but Cleveland City Council takes a long recess in the summer, meeting only once a month to deal only with urgent business. The final meeting before that break is an all-day affair in which council rushes to get the important things done. Nothing seems more important in the city right now than lead poisoning, and council took a big step this week with legislation aimed at greatly curbing it. This follows years of inaction. The task force formed earlier this year to come up with a lead plan visited us recently to talk about their hopes for the legislation. Bob, did they get what they wanted, and what does the legislation do? They think they have a pretty good framework together. It doesn't have everything in it that everybody wanted, but it does set up a a system for checking, particularly rental units, to make sure that they're lead safe and some penalties in there for landlords who don't comply to it. Um, The goal is to have some community meetings now to talk it over and later this month, uh, last week of June or so, to have a committee meeting where they'll approve it and then actually approve the ordinance before the summer's up. So at one of those monthly meetings, they would hope to have finished what they need to do to get it done. So by the end of summer, this would take effect. Right. I think they're hoping to have it done by the July meeting, which is late in July. Part of the uh, deal here is this is this is the city's part of the multi-pronged effort to reduce lead. But the city's position has always been this can't just be a city thing, that the nonprofits and the corporate community are going to have to provide the resources. Cleveland cannot afford the hundreds of millions of dollars that it would take to or more to abate this. 
Um, so the city's done its part. It, yet, you know, what are the assurances that the other partners in this will deliver on the resources they've promised? Right now, they've got good faith conversations, but nothing locked down. But there's recognition that if you put a law in place, but you don't have the money behind it to enforce it, it's useless. So they've got potentially five mil from the state that Matt Dolan has inserted into the state budget. They're talking to people like the the major philanthropic groups who are on board with the idea, and they think they'll get some money there. Um, they boosted some uh, fee requirements, like the rental registration fee they doubled. And there's enough rental units in town that if they get like 60,000 registrations, that's $2 million that they'll reap out of that increase. So they've got some sources. But that is that is a key part now, too, is they, they have to line up better funding sources to cover the whole cost. Remediation would be hugely expensive, and they may have to pay for some relocation of tenants. The um, the council done, has done its part. Uh, is the mayor, Frank Jackson, and his administration in line with this? They are. They worked with the committee. Uh, so there's been interaction with the administration all along, and they're on board of the idea. Uh, now the question is, how well does it get implemented? Okay. One of the other things council did in its marathon session was to allow, with restrictions, motorized scooter rentals in the city. This is something that came about after uh, bird scooters dumped a bunch of them in the city last year, and the city immediately prohibited them. The law starts as soon as Frank Jackson signs it, right? This isn't a, a time-sensitive thing. What are the rules? Um, first off, they get 30 days to set up the program. Then they're going to start. You have to register with the city and get a license to be able to do this as a business. Um, and then there's some, some guidelines that are – they have misdemeanor penalties attached to them. You can't uh, – Initially, there'll be a pilot program, so if you're a vendor, you can only put these things out in stands in certain parts of the city. University but, Circle, downtown, right. Tremont, that kind of thing. All high-traffic areas. Um, and then they will migrate around as users get them from those stands. But uh, you won't be able to ride them on streets that have speed limits of 35 or more. So Euclid Avenue, for example, the speed limit's 25 you could ride it there. Carnegie's a speed limit's 35. You couldn't be on Carnegie. Same uh, with Chester and some of the other exactly. thoroughfares in town. Um, they also limited the speed. They typically go 15 miles an hour in other cities, but they ratcheted that to 12, thinking that would be a safety factor. And they, the vendors Good can control Good luck enforcing them. that. Yeah. <laughs> well, the vendors I can know. control them via app so that they can set them all so that they're governed and they can't go faster than 12 miles an hour. Emily, last year when these scooters really became a, a news thing in Cleveland, you did a lot of work on it, and then I think you actually had some personal experience with them. Uh, hearing what the city is doing here and knowing what you know from your reporting, how do you think this will work? It'll be interesting to see if these vendors come back. Bird always dropped scooters into cities with the intention of stirring up some trouble, basically getting the product out there before the city has a chance to put a bunch of regulations on it and therefore stirring up interest. I don't know if Bird's going to come back. Bird is in Columbus and other cities where regulations have been put on the scooters. Um, we also have Carrie McCormack, who has a good relationship with Bird. So we could see them come. We could see Lime come. It, again, it's it's what Mark said, regulating this kind of thing. Cleveland police have a lot 
to do and regulating bird scooters, whether they're going 12 or 15 miles an hour would not really be a priority there or pulling over people on main thoroughfares. I don't know if that's a main priority for them. But what I find interesting is that part of the proceeds would go towards constructing bike lanes and other things that would make these scooters more safe. So. Well, you, you you point out the police wouldn't be able to do it. Police aren't able to regulate what we're going to be talking about next, which is dirt bikes. Right. Um, but, but your reporting also found that when these bikes come into a city – we see some injuries. We see some some. Oh, absolutely. Um, I've fallen off of one. I think that's what you were getting right. at. I fell off one in Tremont because I hit a pothole. Uh, the streets are not... <laughs> they're not very conducive to riding these safely and helmets aren't provided at the stands and there are just a lot of safety issues across the country you've seen a lot of hospitals have to deal with a whole bunch of people coming in uh, with injuries from this and they can be pretty major these aren't going at a low speed yeah. these are these are significant speeds so we'll see what happens uh, I'll add a couple comments with the urban planner hat on uh, that, you know, obviously what's happening in cities, not just in Cleveland, is that the scooters come in and we're trying to make those scooters fit in our existing infrastructure, which is really all done for cars. The hope is, on a big picture, is as cities embrace new technology that we begin to create infrastructures that are for those technologies, just as we built roads for cars and prior to that for trains, and then with this money going over towards maybe dedicated lanes for bikes. We'll see, obviously, really long-term, but um, I'm glad the scooters are here. I think we're going to work that out. And, yeah, a little bit of buyer beware here, Emily. So, you know, maybe (laughs) stick to the feet. I think that it's important to think of these. These are not necessarily a main form of transportation. They're a, like, final gap closer. So just by bringing these in doesn't mean that we're providing more public transit, especially with the technology barrier and the money barrier. So as much as city council can view this as adding something to our public transportation, there's still a lot left to do, um, and this isn't really an alternative method. Will there be Wi-Fi attached? <laughs> Ask I, I, undoubtedly people will text i've seen it someone will have their phone out with just one hand on the scooter don't wear heels on the scooter that is my my <laughs> wise advice <laughs> Bob. one thing that i think it ties in with what mark was just saying about infrastructure is and i, I think it remains to be seen how this enforcement aspect happens uh, there's provisions in it to keep people from riding these things on the sidewalks and business areas but when you get out of a business area, you're allowed to ride on a sidewalk and it's don't cause undue interference with pedestrians or undue interference with traffic on side streets. And that, that that's an enforcement job for the police that I don't envy for them. Okay. Two years ago, uh, Mayor Frank Jackson made an unusual bid to forge a relationship with a segment of the city population not often heard from people who love to ride dirt bikes. Jackson proposed building a dirt bike track on the east side, working with riders to design it. But it was an election year, and the idea became controversial. Jackson ultimately abandoned it, in part because of the noise it would have created and the opposition he heard from people who would have to suffer through that noise. Now it might be coming back. Bob, tell us what's changed. The mayor shelved the idea in 2017 and said there's problems we got to look at. Uh, noise was one of them, the big one. Now they're coming back and they're bringing in better partners and they're also looking for a consultant to address some of those key issues. Like, wh- where do you put the thing? 
where will but, the, but stop there i mean that right that's the problem is what city council person given what happened two years ago is going to take that back to their ward and say i think it's a good idea is the, i mean other than the the land they have that they bought out at the airport where it's already noisy as hell where in the city could you put this and not offend a neighbor who what who would which council person would accept it i I think that's going to be a really hard sell. I, mean, I I get all over the city, and I couldn't come up with a space big enough that you could set this place up, and it wouldn't have noise implications for adjacent neighborhoods. Uh, and it's not just the noise implication. One of the things we learned following uh, the deeper dive into this was that even if you found a location that is secluded enough to have a, a natural sound barrier, uh, going to and from that location becomes a problem. Are the bikers going to, you know, ride their bikes through the neighborhoods leading into that location? Are yeah, which is illegal. Right. right. And that's part of the street bike life culture that we're not sure this will eliminate because some people just like riding on the street. You know, there are trailers, trailering your bikes in. That's that's vehicle traffic. Um, I, I don't think we could get anyone to raise their hand right at this point on council to say, I want to take this on. Um, and remember the other element of this was this idea that we would better be able to improve community relations by com- connecting uh, some of these bikers in the culture with, with police and others. And, you know, again, I'm not sure that's really part of this right now, but they're looking at the practical side. I mean, that, uh, I that, that's a laudable goal, right? Bring in people that never deal with City Hall, but, but you still have the pragmatic. We're two and a half years away from the next city election, um, you know, it would even if you if you could rush this and get it designed in a year, you're coming up on the eve of another election year, and this became huge election fodder. Add to that that the only person promoting this is Frank Jackson, and it's pretty clear he will not be mayor after this term. He could always announce he's running again, but but doesn't appear likely. And if there's no champion to follow this through, and there is all this opposition. Why go through this? It's it's and it's it, it, he's campaigned on it or made it a very significant part of that uh, the term prior to his most recent reelection. He put a lot of capital in it, um, but there's another element of this that we're forgetting that even with the consultant coming in, the other stopper to this was the liability issue. Is there a, a person that is or a company or vendor that's willing to take on the liability right. of having a trick track uh, where? People it's can get seriously, people get seriously hurt, hurt. Right. and even the idea of signing a waiver—none uh, of that is necessary. Uh, going to necessarily going to make this less liable for a vendor. Uh, I think there's a lot of hurdles here, but I think he, the mayor, is moving forward on this commitment he made to the people that he believes he's helping with uh, providing a track. Well, one of the chief people that you talked to when you did the dive will not be part of the conversation Yeah, there was now. a gentleman named Christian Hayward who went by the name Street God who was tapped by the city, and I sat with him in, in meeting uh, in the Red Room where these guys were kind of coming in to uh, help broker sort of that, that connection between community relations and the police and this bike life. I got a call from Street God recently from prison, so he's... He was involved in a shooting out in Beachwood and uh, the Beachwood Mall parking Beachwood lot. Beachwood Mall parking lot, and uh, so like sort of that. I think he's off the table. Yeah, uh, he was also the one who helped promote and put on the uh, one of these uh, uh, bike events at Muni Lot. That right, was kind of the fallback option. 
Um, and the city is talking about doing some more of those, but they're going to have to get other people involved. He was one of the prime guys. Bob, that the events is one of the things they've amped up more for this, this run at it. Um, they've, the, the mayor talked about this being a culture and maybe we can teach skills. People could turn this into a career as they, they grow into it more. Well, the, the organizations they've lined up now are much more national in scope. One of them has a partnership with, uh, John Hopkins University and does science, basically the physics of this stuff. Uh, another one does stunt riding and has instruction and has a national tour. And so they're, they're, they're putting a lot more in that. And some of these events that Mark mentioned are going to be like pop-up clinics on here's how you take apart a BMX bike and put it back together and maintain it and, and keep it running. Or here's how you maintain a dirt bike. All right, we'll see. Talking about comebacks, the United Way is trying to make one. They announced moves this week to rebuild the mechanism they have for gathering money uh, after several years of hard efforts at refocusing pretty much purely on dealing with poverty. They rolled out how they will change their their money collection and their dispersing of the money. Emily, you've been talking to them for quite some time. Uh, what happened this week? What's changed? So basically the company uh, the nonprofit's board approved the community hub for basic needs which is a giant pivot in how the United Way distributes money. So thinking about it from a donor perspective, you would donate during part of the traditional workplace campaign which the United Way is known for and still very well known for. There's good name recognition there. Um and there is public trust there. But you would take your money and you would say I'm giving it to the United Way and the United Way would spread it out among thousands of different organizations within its footprint. Um this changes that pretty significantly. Uh they are focusing on the basic needs of the community so food clothing shelter and they're putting their power as a convener and their knowledge from a hundred years a hundred plus years of doing this uh to try and say look when you give your money to the united way we will give it to people who have a proven track record of addressing the issues that you care about um, which is appealing to people who now have direct channels to donating to causes that they care about, like on Kickstarter or GoFundMe or or that kind of thing. And so they're trying to appeal to donor empowerment in a way, which has become more possible through technology. But they're also saying, look, we have the knowledge to do this. Let, let's put this into effect and make more of an impact with the fewer resources that we have. All right. Full disclosure, as president of Advance Ohio, I'm on the United Way board. Uh, when they came in to talk to us, they, they went through all of that. But there came a moment in that meeting where Paul Dolan, who's who's the current chairman, um, in very few words, laid out something that was, was pretty shocking. Um, he said, basically, each year we do our campaign, but have never really gone out and asked the people who fund organizations for more money. Mm-hmm. And and he learned this in a conversation he had with somebody who said, you know, I support a lot of things equally, but I actually give you less money. So part of their strategy now will be, in addition to the campaign they do each year, to be out on the road the rest of the year asking, you know, high, high money people uh, to contribute to this cause. Yeah. And I think that that's something important to remember. Um, it's something that you don't really think about with the United Way at all. 
it kind of just operates on a low level in the background and you don't see these giant announcements like 1.5 million donated to United Way, that kind of thing. But announce an announcement like that came this week from the Cutler family of Gates Mills because they're taking the initiative to go out and ask for this money. Um, and it's entirely necessary. Their revenue streams are, it's not as bad as with other nonprofits, but they're significantly decreased. So um, they're actually having to make some cuts as well. Anyway, after a break, we'll be back to talk about some of the big things coming our way in the summer concert scene. It's this week in the CLE. Trying to cut through the noise and stay up to date on news that's important in Northeast Ohio can be challenging. We have a small solution, and it's free. It's our weekday newsletter, The Wake Up, which arrives in your email first thing in the morning, meaning you can start your day fully up to date. Join tens of thousands of others who use The Wake Up to be in the know. Sign up at cleveland.com slash newsletters. We're wrapping up this episode of This Week in the CLE with entertainment and pop culture team at Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn with reporters Annie Nikoloff, Mark Bona, and Troy Smith, and their editor Mike Norman. Mike had a great line this week when he was explaining that a concert planned for the MLB All-Star Game break in Cleveland is so big that it makes last year's Inkaya Festival look like a garage band playing on his back porch. So, all, why is the All-Star Game set of concerts such a big deal? Mark. Well, I think the, the big thing is Major League Baseball made a very concerted effort this year to really ramp things up. And the, years ago, it was just one game. Then it became the Home Run Derby. Then it became the Futures game. <clears throat> now, uh, they've got Play Ball Park, which is a five-day festival. Runs from Friday, July 5th to uh, Tuesday, July 9th, which is the day of the game. It's inside and outside. They've really ramped it up. Uh, the key thing is they're going to have a ton of former players, including Hall of Famers, basically signing autographs for the price of admission. This town is really big into its sports memorabilia, so that's a big thing. But then on top of that, they've now announced this uh, a pretty big concert, uh, and I can let uh, my colleagues uh, Troy and Andy talk about this. You're burying the lead, man. you got two of the biggest <laughs> rock bands in the world playing free shows back-to-back nights, July 5th and 6th, at 21 Pilots and the Killers. The Killers, I don't know the last time they played here. 21 Pilots are probably the biggest band in the state of Ohio or out of the state of Ohio right now. Yeah, I mean, the past two times 21 Pilots have played in Cleveland, like teenage girls have camped overnight to see them. Like, it's a big deal. That thing sold out so quickly. Troy, you said you tried to get tickets. It was just... The tickets went for both concerts. They're free, but you have to get them as if they're tickets. Ten minutes for each, they were claimed. Then they released more this morning. Those were gone in about 15 minutes. Are they selling on the on the uh, aftermarket for big money? No, that's no, a, the they Major say, League Baseball is cracking down on that. They said if they find them that they're sold, they suspect they'll cancel them. Uh, I haven't seen any. I checked StubHub this morning. There weren't any up there. Mike? It really will test that uh, Mall B uh, uh, area as a concert venue because it was pretty cool for Ankaya, even though Ankaya didn't draw a lot of people because you had the Center for Self Health Innovation on one side and the old uh, convention center on the other and the, the field uh, with St. Clair uh, being the stage. I bet you they'll have probably 20,000 in there is what I'm hearing. I remember when Ankaya was happening, I asked for the capacity I think they said both malls was 25,000. Now, obviously, I don't think Major League Baseball is looking to push the limits of how many people they can get there. But I suspect close to 10,000 each night. Um, that might be how many tickets they gave out. I don't know what the situation is with vendors and stuff, but 10,000 on the mall. It really will be extremely cool and will show you what a major festival can look like in downtown Cleveland, I think. 
So, so the the All Star Game, which for decades was was just a game. I mean, every year when they go to a new city, it's it's growing. I mean, this is much bigger than last year. It, it's a lot bigger than last year, Chris. This is the first year they've done this play ball park, and this is going to be a series of interactive events, both, again, both inside and outside. The mall's going to really be buzzing uh, all week. I mean, Major League Baseball is really capitalizing over – uh, instead of just one game, they've really expanded this out. And, and I think the concert is a really big deal for the reason that Mike and Troy and Andy said, uh, it's going to be fascinating to see, uh, to see this place. It's more than just the game. You don't have to be a baseball fan to be downtown during this time. Now, the, the, it was very important to Major League Baseball because it was coming to Cleveland with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to tie this year's game to the music, but do you think they're setting the stage for all future All Star games? Absolutely, now? absolutely, they are. This is this isn't going away. I mean, unless Playball Park fails miserably, and I do not see that happening, uh, this is absolutely going to be the. the I'm norm. talking more about the concerts. Do, it, it, we're getting concerts because they wanted it to be the rock. All-Star game, but do you think they'll have concerts now going forward? I think so. I don't, I don't see why they wouldn't. I don't see why you, you go back. I think they definitely will keep this going. I think, you know, with the NFL draft coming to town, we know that these um, somewhat ancillary events, even a draft, have become citywide extravaganzas, events that the major leagues want to take advantage of, and I think this is a perfect example of that kind of thing. Well, and the NFL very much wanted to tie into the whole rock theme of, of uh, Cleveland. This weekend, we're, we're on the eve of a couple of pretty big music events at two ends of the spectrum. One is a long-running favorite coming to a close, and another is fairly new and clearly on the ascent. What are they? Well, we got the Warp Tour on Saturday. That's and the long-running one. That's that is long-running. It's coming to an end, but probably isn't coming to an end because they'll make a lot of money on these anniversary shows <laughs> and they'll bring it back. And then, so I'm covering that. It's going to be huge. It, it coincides with the 25th anniversary exhibit that the Rock Hall is uh, opening on Saturday for the Warp Tour. Where is the concert? It's in front of the Rock Hall, right out in front. We've got Simple Plan and Hawthorne Heights and a few other acts headlining it. Um, probably expect a few thousand people and then obviously people wanting to check out the exhibit. And then Annie's covering, you know, what has become the premier festival, music festival in Cleveland. Yeah, uh, Laura Live Music Festival happening Saturday and Sunday. Uh, it's the fourth year for the festival. Um, it's become this huge draw. I mean, it has a staying power that Inkaya didn't have. I mean, we just talked about Inkaya being a really big festival in Cleveland. But this, I would argue, is Cleveland's main festival. What what has driven its success? Because it's pretty far outside of town. I mean, it's it takes place at Laurel, right? I mean, yeah, that's... yeah. I mean, it's it's about an hour away. Um, but I would say it's just persistence. I mean, they have just kept at it every year. I've been all three years of the festival. The first year, it did not sell out. You know, it was not that well attended. But they've just been really good about marketing they brought acts you know they know the type of people that they want to bring they don't try to go outside of that uh, a lot of rock acts a lot of jam bands things like that who are the biggest names that that you'll be seeing uh cheryl crow and hosier are the two headliners so i think the key when we were doing the stuff on Ankaya last year we talked to denny young who runs laurel live it's actually the benefit is him not being downtown because the public eye isn't there. You don't have to be this huge success right off the bat. You don't have to go through all the red tape. You don't have to get the city involved. So he's been able to build that <laughs> festival. I'm sorry. I mean, you know, we've had stuff, you know, the APMAs that did it outdoor at first. Mike Shea from Alternative Press will tell you the biggest problem was getting permits for vendors, being able to sell beer outside. There's a lot of stuff that goes with that. And Denny Young has been able to build that festival kind of on the outskirts 
into something bigger. Uh, is it easy to get to? Is it easy to park? And, and what, what actual municipality is it in? Uh, it's in Russell Township, uh, Butler campus of Laurel School. So it's this beautiful outdoor like school campus. Uh, you park at outside parks that are like a, a mile away, um, and then you take a shuttle in. So it's actually pretty easy. The shuttles run every 10 minutes throughout the day. So it's pretty easy to get to, but you can't park on site at the festival. And that is one fault of Laura Live. That and running out of food last year. <laughs> that too. <laughs> well, and they're, they've addre- they're addressing a couple of those things uh, after this year. This will be the last year Laurel Live is at the Laurel School campus. And maybe the last year it is called Laurel Live because they announced earlier this year, uh, this month that they're uh, moving, they're looking for a larger venue because it's outgrown that facility. And they want a larger venue, which parking is on site. And uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens and where they're going to go. But Would they really change the name after spending four years to invest in getting this brand recognition? Uh, according to them, everything is on the table. I mean, if they find a venue that is, you know, way out there, I mean, it's kind of hard to call something Laurel Live that has nothing to do with Chris Laurel is School. right. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> no. So. Uh, it's worth bringing up the Elevation Music Group, the people putting on Laura Live. They're also putting out a brand new music festival in Columbus this summer as well called Wonderbus. Uh, so you can see that they're being successful with multiple music festivals. And uh, I wouldn't be shocked if uh, the name change didn't affect it too badly because they're pretty well known for these events at this point. All right. Big question. Whenever you do anything outside in, in this area, anybody check the weather? Yeah, we did. Uh, Annie did. She's got the What yeah. to Know If You Go post up on Cleveland.com right now. Yeah. Uh, last I checked, it should be sunny and good. Sunny and good. And the MLB <laughs> is rain or shine. So <laughs> 21 Pilots fans will be poured upon and they, they don't care. That's okay. Yeah. Okay. That's the end of another podcast. You've been listening to This Week in the CLE, the Cleveland.com podcast discussion of the latest news. I'm Chris Quinn. And for all this quality discussion, I say thanks to Mark Namick, Corey Schaefer, Rich Exner, Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston, Courtney Astolfi, Adam Faris, Bob Higgs, Emily Bamforth, Troy Smith, Mark Bona, Annie Nikoloff, and Mike Norman. Come back every Thursday night for the latest episode. <laughs>